This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. If you want to know more about Ubuntu, I invite you to pick up a copy of my book, Everyday Ubuntu, Living Better Together, The African Way. Every week on this podcast, I speak to guests who are on a similar journey as mine, fighting for justice and learning along the way. In these conversations, we explore what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. This week, my guest is Gina Miller, and for those of you who don't know her, you're in for a treat. Gina is a businesswoman and philanthropist in London, but also known as the woman who took on the UK government twice and won both times. Constantly pushing for fairness, transparency, and social justice in today's world, she started the True and Fair campaign and Messages of Love. She's also an ambassador for the Tutu Foundation UK. Gina, welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. I'm very, very excited to have you on. And I want to start by asking you a question that I ask all of my guests. Um, and it's it's something that my mom once said that, you know, our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I want to ask you, what is missing from your resume that people should know about you? Being a survivor is not something you tend to put on a resume. People leave out their failures and their uh, the negative part of their life. So the whole Gina is missing from my resume. The whole Gina. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's always more interesting to hear how people describe themselves. So could you give us a brief description of who you are? I'm a businesswoman in my professional life. But back in 1996, when I started, my view has always been not to separate my personal and my private life from my professional life. So I uh, attack, if you like, every part of my life, my professional, personal life with one sole aim, which is to try and do the best I can to create more fairness in the world around me as I move through it. Well, I know you, so I think that you are doing that, but I will, you know, I have more questions so that my listeners can learn the same about you. Um, so you challenged the UK government in 2016 over its authority to trigger Article 50 without parliamentary approval, and they ruled in your favor. Could you sort of explain briefly to my listeners what that means and how that all happened? Yes, the background is is fairly similar to both cases, because um, I won two cases against two different prime ministers, both in the Supreme Court in the UK. So in combination, they were the biggest constitutional cases for 400 years. And the reasons why they were so important, or for both cases, is that in the UK, we are only one of three countries that doesn't have a written constitution. And that means that our government has been governing under, if you like, ancient practices, but under this agreement, if you like a gentleman's agreement, that they will behave within certain parameters and they won't mm -hmm. stretch those parameters. And what we saw or what happened uh, after the referendum vote, vote for Brexit for us leaving the EU is that we had a prime minister who sought to put herself above the law. And then again in 2019, my second case, prime ministers cannot put themselves above the law, even though we have an unwritten constitution. So my cases were to established, or if you like, in the court of law, the highest courts of law, that our representatives, our MPs that are elected, could not be shut out of processes. And mm -hmm. prime ministers cannot behave like authoritarian uh, leaders 
even within the confines of or the loose confines of a, co a written constitution and the courts unwritten constitution and the courts ruled in my favor in both times that a prime minister has to be answerable to our representatives that are elected in our parliament i mean yeah you're the, you know you're working for us this this is absolutely i mean it, it, the 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 idea that leaders can operate outside the law without any scrutiny any transparency any redress is authoritarian. So that's a move that we did not think we'd ever see in the United Kingdom, which is the mother of all parliaments and where the rule of law is a central pillar to our uh, democratic um, arrangement. Um, so it was very vital that somebody stood up in a very febrile environment uh, to stand up and to ascertain that they could not enact the way they were trying to. Well, I mean, so you stood up and you sort of became the face of the people in the UK that disagreed with Brexit and how it was done. How how does that all feel? It, it was uh, such a wide mix of uh, emotions because I've been a campaigner for 30 years. And so I didn't go into either one of my court cases in any form of naivety, believing that there wouldn't be a backlash. What I mm -hmm. didn't expect was a the political repositioning of my court cases by the government and those right-wing um, media that supported them into making me a traitor, that I actually was going against parliament, against our, our constitution, against our sovereignty, and making you know that statement that I was a traitor and the judges were the enemies of the people, which has mm -hmm. echoes of you know 1930s Germany. To, for them to have done that is it, somewhere uh, or something I never thought I'd see in the UK. But then that unleashed, that uh, political language and, if you like, propaganda unleashed a whole barrage of abuse, which I suppose in a nutshell sort of were in three areas. One was this idea that because I'm a woman of colour, it's not my place to enter these sorts of discussions. Um, I should be quiet and be grateful. Uh, the second one was that I couldn't possibly be bright enough, so I must have some powerful, uh, you know, rich white men behind me pulling my strings like a puppet, so I was only the face of it. And the third one was the idea when it came to finances that it couldn't be my money. Again, I must be funded by very rich people. It could be, how could I have been successful in my own right for me to be using my own money? So, you know, it was it was shocking to me that those beliefs, which were gathering a huge amount of support in the UK, which ended up in me having to change the way I live my life and my family and us to be in security for four years under and looked after by the terrorist squad. Um, to know that you could gather support for those sorts of views really shocked me about the Britain we lived in because I didn't think it was that way. No, I, th I think that's, you know, how some Americans feel. But you mentioned that the backlash and that abuse and and, you know, this vitriol that came from Brexit supporters and these threats on your life. And I wonder, you know, reading the things that people have said, how do you sort of keep fighting in light of all of these horrible things that people are saying? I have a very odd mindset, I think, that I've developed from my childhood <laughs> to, to, to today. Uh, I think some of it is nature and nurture. I, I can't remember being any different. You know, I was an annoying little three-year-old at school who was asking the teachers why, questioning everything, wanting to know, you know, why were we driving part, uh, past poorer parts of the country where children were playing in the street without shoes when we had shoes. So I can't remember never asking questions about what I saw as, as unfair and sadness around me from a little child. But as I grew up, I think that um, the failures in my life and the trials I've been through have forged me into somebody 
where it's not easy to um, keep me quiet when I see wrong, when I see injustice. And so I, the people who abuse me and try to threaten me don't understand something very fundamental, which is they energize me to carry on because I will never allow their voices, the voices of bullies and racists and haters to become mainstream. Um, I will always stand up and speak out against them selfishly because it's not the world I want my children and my grandchildren to live in. Um, but just from a, a much broader view, it is not what any one of us should allow because if there is an oxygen of silence, it will be filled by others. I'm trying to live in Gina's world as well. <laughs> um, so this is a question that I sort of had discussed with some friends. You know, it seems like the UK is careening towards leaving the EU without a plan. And clearly you see when we're upset over here, we're rioting and protesting. And so I'm sort of wondering how this isn't happening with this sort of lack of leadership and direction coming your way. I think that's a really, really good question, because um, when I started my court case, I was also part of a what I thought was a pragmatic group of people explaining fact based reasons why remaining and reforming from within the EU and us being a voice of change for the future was a good place for us to be. And what surprised me was a lack of voices, both from business, from academics, from ordinary people. That civic voice was missing in the UK four years ago. And mm -hmm. it's become even less now. And I think it is, I've been wondering about it. And I think there's two reasons that, uh, that I've alighted on. One is, in the UK, we have not had a history of being activists. We are pretty much a, uh, our civic voice has always been, um, well, we've elected our MPs, they go off and do the work, and we carry on with our everyday lives. We haven't, we haven't had that um, active discussion. We don't mm -hmm. talk about politics in bars and cafes like they do in Europe or in, or in the U, uh, US. We we're just we have been more uh, if you like, subservient in the way we have acquiesced in, in our democracy. And I think that is just something that historically has happened in the UK. It is changing. And for me, that's one of the silver linings of where we are be post-Brexit, post-COVID, post is that we've got a younger generation that's a much more intolerant of acceptance and in, and intolerance. So they are intolerant of intolerance. And I think that's a really positive uh, way forwards for us as a country, because we do need to have checks and balances. We don't, we can't just walk away from a ballot box and never ask a question again about what our representatives are doing. So I think all those things are positives. But then I think the other thing is, is we do have a class system still in the, US, in the UK. And mm -hmm. people say to me, well, what does that mean? What I mean by that is this almost acceptance. Again, it is a form of acceptance that you have a, a wealthy elite who are well-educated, so they must really know what they're talking about. Then we have professional middle class, and again, they must know what we want. So we will be, again, more accepting rather than realizing that everybody has a quality of common sense of humanity and has the ability to express those. So our, our if you like, as a society, how we've judged ourselves and each other has been based more on money and academia and education rather than the much more humanistic values and, and attributes that we give to each other. Right. And and speaking of judging, you know, you are a first generation immigrant from a former British colony. And I know that many of the people opposed to you sort of use that as part of their criticism. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you respond to their challenges to your Britishness? 
I, I find it extraordinary, this idea. You know, I've had many of the taunts that in America, uh, female politicians, even though because people think I'm a politician because I have a political voice rather than realizing that we all have a political voice. But, um, you know, I go back home is a regular taunt that I get told. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find so extraordinary is that, uh, first of all, I was born in British Guiana, so I, I was born British. But if you put that aside for one minute, the fact I've lived here since I was 10 years old, um, this is my home. I have a British passport, but even more so the fact that uh, because I live, work, pay my taxes and I care and love my country, that makes me a patriot. It doesn't make me somebody who doesn't come from here. My values, my, my children, um, the country I choose to fight for is my home. Um, and, you know, we all have the right to do that. We may come from different places, but wherever we live and wherever our hearts are, that is our country. Right. You you spoke about, you know, what helps you to keep fighting. Um, but I wonder if there's sort of like a quote or a phrase or mantra that also like sustains you in these these moments, a sort of principle you could share with us. I suppose there are two. One is taking the negative energy and redirect it. Mm-hmm. Don't waste any ounce of energy. Um, that's one of the things I try to do. I try to think about how am I going to take in that negative energy and use it in a positive way. And the other, I suppose, is everything you have today could be gone tomorrow. So always put a hand out for those who need it today. Absolutely. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the True and Fair campaign and foundation and sort of the impetus behind that? So the, there are two, the True and Fair campaign, um, in my professional life, I'm an investment manager, I own a, an investment company, and many of the things that led to the global financial crisis that affected you in the US, us in the UK, it was global, um, mm-hmm. I suspected would not change. There'd be lots of wonderful words and uh, platitudes about how everything was going to be different, but under the surface, I was very skeptical that much would change. And the uh, people who suffer from uh, financial injustices is all of us. Um, so I, I was pressing for, and still continue to press, for a different sort of financial services sector and industry where people understand that their financial health is as important as their physical health and the companies understand their social capital. It's not just about making money. It, they have a they have a important communicable community and societal value, because without money, we're, we can't operate. So they are vital to our survival as, as societies. So they have to operate in a, a responsible manner. So the True and Fair campaign is about promoting fairness and transparency and honesty in uh, the world of finance and hoping that financial services companies and sectors will behave with people first, not profit first. And uh, that, that's that campaign. The True and Fair Foundation is uh, based, again, on transparency and honesty, but more in, around the uh, charity sector, because you in the US are doing much better than we are on this, mm-hmm. in that um, we do not have a great record of transparency in the world of charity. We have very poor rules and regulations. We have very little um, uh, trustee duties, and people 
see it as something they do with their sort of one hand to wash the other hand. Charity in the UK needs to be reformed. And that's what I've been calling about for us setting benchmarks and spending. So, for example, we have nothing in the UK which says that X amount has to go to the uncharitable cause. We have no gold star. We have nothing like that. So in the UK, you could give £100 and find out down the road that £5 has gone to the end charitable cause because we have no benchmarks. As I said, we have no rules and regulations around giving, spending, overheads, nothing like that. So those are the sort of things I've been pushing for. Well, I mean, amidst all this, you also went on to create messages of love <laughs> for the tough moments that people are having because of COVID-19. And like, I'm interested to hear how you even had the idea for this as well. Yeah, it, and the time. <laughs> um, time. Uh, I, I haven't. I don't sleep a lot. It's it's a good and a bad thing. <laughs> I can imagine. It is a good and a bad thing, but uh, everything I do, all my campaigning, comes from pers- not just personal experience, but knowing that I can actually make a difference or that I can have a voice. There's no point me jumping in bandwagons when other people are doing, you know, fighting particular causes. Why do they need my help? I, I will take on those that are possibly a little bit gritty and uncomfortable for people to do because I know that I've got the the strength to, to carry on and to launch them. And during when the pandemic started and lockdown started, um, th- those heartbreaking images of people dying alone, of never being able to say goodbye to their family members, to be taken off in an ambulance and that's it. Mm-hmm. There is no closure for families. The, the the bereavement process can't start because you never said goodbye. And to now, then, then to not be able to have funerals, it just struck me as we would be left with such grief for so many years that if, and, you know, things happen so quickly. And I thought in a digital age, because I, I, I launched a digital wealth management company, I thought, well, hang on, we could we do digital um, accounts for our clients um, where they they have control, they can deposit whatever they want. You know, they have full transparency. And I thought, I wonder if we could do that with something where the old fashioned, where you wrote a letter and you put pictures and messages of love, because you wouldn't say the same message to one child that you would to the next or to your husband or to your brother. They're very individual messages you would leave. And maybe you wanted to leave your favorite ring or you wanted to, you know, you hadn't got around to doing your will or you hadn't gotten around to saying, you know, um, sorry to somebody. Um, you needed to offload um, and, and help them heal after after you're gone. And people, we because in the UK, we don't talk about death. It's um, one of those cultural things. We, we really don't. And so I thought this was a way of creating digital memory boxes so that people could in private upload photographs, their wishes, um, and then they have full control. I launched it as a free service because I wanted people to be able to not think about money at that time or at this time. And um, we launched, I was shocked at how many people used it. I didn't realize um, how big the need would be. But what was so extraordinary was that um, those people who got better then could also delete them. And many people haven't deleted them. So they're still anxious and people are still worried. And obviously, as we hear about a new wave coming and figures increasing, uh, the need will be there. But then I thought with everything I do, I try to look at a legal angle to everything. And in the UK, our will legislation is very um, outdated. It's based on an act from 1837. Wow. In, in the US, you guys were ahead of us, actually, because there, there were about 12 states that should straight away brought in emergency will legislation. And other countries did. New Zealand did. Other countries. So I started lobbying in the UK for us to bring in some temporary um, emergency legislation. 
so that people could do witnesses of wills through video conferencing, online, digital. I mean, it just makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the government have agreed, I, I, we found out in September, we started in March, that uh, the government have agreed to bring in some temporary legislation for um, witnessing on video conferencing and some other digital tools. So um, that's one win, but we need more to yep. do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, congrats on that. What What is the message of love that you most like to hear? I think the message of love is that uh, <laughs> it's a... I'm never gone. I'm always in your heart. Mm-hmm. And what? then the, the other one, I have to tell you the other one, which I, I saw the other day, we just reviewed, someone sent it to me because it was so incredibly beautiful, was oh. that um, if if the if the antidote to COVID was love, you wouldn't have lived forever. Oh, goodness. Isn't that extraordinary? And like so true. <laughs> I know. Well, so then what do you do to take care of yourself? I have not always been good at that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm learning to be better at it. And I think uh, the sort of things I do, I try to find really quiet space to listen to my own voice. And what I mean by that is that we have an innate ability to know what, what's right or wrong or to work through issues and to feel that, that pit at the bottom of our stomach and know what that really means and listen to the voice in our heads. But we have so much noise in modern society, modern living, I think we forget to listen to our own inner voices. So I try to find space and time to do that, to try and listen to myself and how I should, you know, telling me to calm, you know, take some time out, listen to a bit of music, um, do something that fills me with joy, that replenishes me, because sometimes we forget to do that. So quiet space to replenish is really good. Um, Hugging my kids lots because there's nothing better than the hugs. I think it's um, and the other thing, I let myself cry. It sounds an odd one that one because I think as a woman, what I find when I speak to other women is that we're supposed to be strong all the time. I know men have had that thrown at them for a long time, but for women, we're supposed to be able to cope with everything and be strong. And I worry that if we stay strong, we become inflexible and we become, we don't really feel other people's pain and we shut out too much of what makes us human. So I will, I allow myself to cry and I allow myself to feel hurt. And once I've let it out, I can move on. No, I understand the cry one because Ed is always so surprised that I, I'm a person who hates crying. And if I start crying, then I will cry even more once I realize yes. that I'm crying. Um, and so, no, I, I understand that. It's, it's actually very powerful because what you're doing is it, it's you're letting out your pain. Um, and, you know, because you can't hold all that pain. Whatever is hurting you, you can't hold it inside. It makes you weaker. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, you know, physically manifests in your body. Yeah, absolutely. Everything about you. I mean, after a good cry, you feel lighter. Mm-hmm. Your eyes may feel a little heavier. But... <laughs> yeah, but you tend to feel oh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as someone who went to boarding school, I think I learned a lot about, you know, independence and discipline there. Were there lessons that you took from your time at boarding school that you sort of carry with you today? I went to a quite a dysfunctional boarding school. So um, I, when I say that, it was I was fortunate in that it was a girls boarding school in the UK who believed that girls could do anything they wanted to be. 
or do or be, which is pretty unusual. Um, even now, um, schools in the UK, we struggle with STEM subjects and maths and really promoting women as, as equals in society. I still think that we have we have a long way to go in doing that um, and to bringing down you know structural in, inequality in the workplace. But I had a, a, an upbringing which allowed me, you know, I had a boarding school that could do that. Um, but also part of that is I played cricket. I played boys sports. So <laughs> I was competing in, you know, boys sports as well as girls sports, which was pretty incredible. Um, but I think the best thing about my boarding school is that we had girls from all corners of the globe. Um, and that gave me an insight into other people's culture, which I would never have got anywhere else. Yeah, my, my boarding school was the same. And I, you know, I really thank my my mom for that experience and being able to be in school with not only students, but also teachers from all over. Yeah, I think it's both because you, you have a different perspective and you're you're even from a very young age. The conversations are different. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's, it's a wider world. Um, who have been the people who have inspired you? My father was one of my first inspirations. I was very fortunate to grow up at the knees of a man who was um, our attorney. He was a, a boy at 14 who served petrol and couldn't read or write, saved up his money, went to law school and then became our attorney general. But in all of that success, he never forgot that the law is about justice and it's about people's lives. And uh, he taught me a huge amount about social justice, about the rule of law and about fairness in society. Um, but other people I've met along the way have been those who've survived. Survivors are my biggest inspiration, be it from domestic violence or from uh, war zones or from uh, poverty. The human spirit to survive is quite an extraordinary thing and to listen to people's stories. So I don't tend to have... Big. I mean, I've got the usual. I'll read, you know, Mandela's speeches and Maya Angelou, and I've got those sorts of people I'll revisit in my quiet moments that I talked about before. I might read one of their great letters or speeches, but from an everyday, when I meet people who just have got such an incredible story, and, you know, I say, don't take the time to know people. Don't judge people too quickly because everybody has a story, but there are some people who come across who have just such extraordinary stories of survival. That's what makes us human beings, that survival instinct and the ability to adapt. So if you could have 30 minutes of uninterrupted conversation with anyone living or dead, is there someone you would choose? I would choose Maya, I have to say. I mean, I, 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 in my, my biography is called Rise um, because mm -hmm. of her wonderful poem and her estate allowed me to quote it at the beginning of the book. So I was really, really, you know, proud and humbled that they allowed me to do that. But uh, she was a woman with such amazing humanity, but also such wisdom. I wish I could have had not just 30 minutes, but 30 days, whatever. I would have loved, I would have loved to have met her. So then what would you say is the best advice you've received in life? I think my father told me, don't ever apologize for who you are and where you are. You are meant to be there. I like that. I need that for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> And, and speaking of the next week, I don't know if I, you know, have the right to ask this because who knows where the U.S. election is going. But um, how do the Tories keep winning? <laughs> uh, well, for, uh, we have 
a, a system like you, you have to have two parties, you have to have an opposition. And so the Tories haven't kept winning. The Labour Party has kept losing. And I was nervous you were going to say that. <laughs> and uh, I, I, we have to wait to see because our next election's in four years' time. I mean, I was very, very, I used to be a Labour Party um, supporter. I it was very instrumental in some of the policy writing in 2015. And then we shouldn't have lost that election. We're still not quite sure how that happened. But, you know, that uh, 2017 was so difficult. Um, but the last election, we had not just only a weak opposition leader, but also we had a Tory party who were using tools that you uh, are experiencing in the US, you know, digital tools and, um, you know, a lot of the data analysis and the now what is part of the electoral system. And we have to really, you know, hold different conversation about how we protect our democracies when you have these intrusions of, of what I call coders for chaos um, and people who know how to target online. You know, it is destabilizing our democracies around the world. And mm -hmm. we know that that was used in our last election here. And that's just so unfortunate. Well, by the time this episode comes out, the election will be over, but we don't know if we'll have the results. Um, could you recommend a book to my listeners? And it could be your book as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would, you know, obviously I'd love people to, to, to read Rise. The reason I wrote it is because I, I speak, I spend a lot of my time talking to young women and uh, students, and I felt and picked up this um, anxiety in them that uh, they were feeling worried about the future and trying to be perfect. There was so much pressure on them to be brilliant at everything, at school, in sports, the way you look, the way you're doing your career, you know, you must not have failure. And then there are all these books telling women, you know, that uh, this is how easy it is to be a success. This is how great you can be as an entrepreneur. And I wanted to write an honest book about not just my failures, but really practical tips of how you can pick yourself up and how you can survive in a world that can be very unfair to you. And how do you keep on picking yourself up? So Rise is about that. It's, it's an honest account of my failures and the lessons I've learned that I hope will help other people to pick themselves up when they are falling down. Absolutely. So what is your greatest fear for humanity? And what, what is my greatest sorry? fear for humanity? Hmm. And what kinds of things are you doing to help stop that fear come to pass? One of my biggest fears is, as I said, it's about digital and the fact and you know the distinction between dishonesty and truth and fact and fiction and how will we know the difference when it mm -hmm. is being disguised so i think when dishonesty becomes abominable but acceptable which i think we're pretty close at now where we don't react enough that is my fear and to my mind the solution has been it's something else i'm starting to work on here in the uk is i think there has to be um, online legislation. There has to be a duty of care when it comes to those owners because they are earning billions with impunity. And we have to come together as nations and organize ourselves from regulation and legislation and regulatory bodies to ensure that the online world, which, which is dominated by um, untruths and fake news, does not become people's version of the truth. Absolutely. And this is my favorite question. What is your greatest hope for humanity? I hope that the 
generations to come, your generation, generations to come, will put people before profit and will understand that being kind is not a weakness. It is our greatest strength. Thank you, Gina, so much for coming on Everyday Ubuntu. I really, really, really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.